true learning is all self-learning. There's some self-learning that you get when you go to school and you have ideas thrown at you. That happens, but the exciting stuff is what you teach yourself. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. What's up, Liberty Lions? It's great to have you back here at the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home, as always, for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And I've got another one coming for you today in this, the 268th episode of this program. And that means that you can find today's show notes featuring links to all sorts of stuff, particularly things we discussed in this episode over at lionsofliberty.com slash 268. And I know many of you out there are facing major healthcare decisions, especially right now with the open enrollment period for 2017 having just begun. I want to encourage you to check out today's sponsors, Health Excellence Select. They have set up the ultimate free market, affordable alternative to Obamacare that you absolutely must check out. Learn more at lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today is a self-described rationalist philosopher who works outside of academia. He is the host of the Patterson in Pursuit podcast and has recently released the book Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge. I am pleased to welcome Mr. Steve Patterson. Steve, are you ready to roar? I'm ready, Mark. All right. Now, Steve, uh, you got a lot going on there, as I mentioned here, but uh, I know you're also a libertarian as well. So uh, I'm not really sure what came first, the pursuit of knowledge or libertarianism for you. So I'll let you take it whichever way makes sense for your story. But why don't you just give us a little bit of your background? How did you first become interested in philosophy, the pursuit of knowledge, libertarianism, the whole bag? Sure. So I had a bit of a unique upbringing. I was homeschooled for my whole life. And so fairly early on, I developed a love for learning. And maybe when I was about 10 or so, my mother got cancer and she said, look, Steve, I can't really teach you that much right now. Here's some books you have to teach yourself. And that was kind of my first introduction to self-directed learning. And I loved it and it worked out really well. So I had a passion for learning from a young age. And then probably about 2000, six, I read a book by Tom Sowell called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And for the first time, I read the word intellectual. And in that book, he kind of uses it in like a disparaging way. He doesn't speak very highly of intellectuals, but I'd never run across the word before. And I thought, wow, I really like that word. I want to be that. I want to be an intellectual. I want to go into the world of ideas. This is really exciting to me. So very shortly after that, I stumbled across some videos of Ron Paul on YouTube. And in fact, Ron got me excited first about political theory, which sucked me into economics, which then sucked me into philosophy. As you get more foundational, eventually you wind up in the world of philosophy. So for about maybe the past five years or so, six years, I've been doing a lot of self-study learning and the basics of philosophy, the fundamentals of philosophy. And so now I, that's what I do full time. I have a, like you mentioned, I have a podcast, Patterson in Pursuit. Uh, I just finished my first book on philosophy. I write articles on philosophy. I have a YouTube channel of philosophy. So that's kind of my passion. But I have a lot to credit for bringing me down this path, thanks to Ron Paul, of all people. Yeah, for sure. And that's a fascinating story, going back to your homeschooling and and the fact that something you said there, which really strikes me, which is not what most children tend to say about their studies and learning, is that you developed a love for learning. And I mean... Mm. 
even myself being in school, I don't remember loving learning at school. I remember being <laughs> bored out of my mind in school. <laughs> you know, right. so that that's really is an interesting take on it. And do you think that part of that is just the fact that, you know, how your mother got sick and she kind of sent you off on your own almost? Did that make it sort of more fun that you could sort of dive in on your own? You're not sitting there with a teacher with a ruler telling you to you need to finish chapter one tonight and give me a report on it tomorrow. Do you, do you think that sort of plays into your ability to learn the fact that it is more self-directed? Yeah, here's the way that I'd put it. I think true learning is all self-learning. There's some self-learning that you get when you go to school and you have ideas thrown at you. That happens, but the exciting stuff is what you teach yourself. So I also went to college and I had a very underwhelming undergraduate experience. And what I learned in college was not what was being taught in college. I balked at the idea. I think it was ridiculous that these professors who I didn't think were very deep critical thinkers were trying to tell me ideas that I had already worked through and discovered to be wrong, like specifically in politics and economics, where, of course, the mainstream academic conclusions on political theory, I think, are totally backwards. So, yes, in a nutshell, the process of self-learning is what I equate with learning. And I was just immersed in it from a very young age. And I think a lot of homeschool people have the same experience. And kids, before they go into the, the public schooling system, I think kids in general love to learn. And then they equate learning with being in school and then they hate learning. So I think that's one of the unintended consequences of having a terrible educational system like we have. Sure. I mean, when you're just kind of roaming around your house and, and learning about the world as you go, as you crawl around, as you're becoming a child from an infant, that might seem really fun. You're playing, you're enjoying. And then suddenly you're locked in this boring classroom for seven hours a day and you're at the, the mercy of a, a teacher and a bell. So it really take, takes a lot of the fun out of it, I guess. Exactly. And there's no genuine deep inquiry going on in school. It's about, you know, you have to learn these things so that you can take the test. It doesn't matter if you actually understand what you're talking about. It just matters that you can regurgitate a particular amount of information at the right time and then you get the stamp and then that means you're educated. I think that's 180 degrees what actual learning is. Right. You remembered these seven things we told you yesterday, so you're educated. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> that seems to be the basic attitude. So did you uh, decide to pursue your work outside of academia from the get-go, or did you have thoughts about you oh. know becoming a philosophy professor or something like that? Oh, my gosh. It's funny, <laughs> Mark. So being homeschooled, I had this very romantic idea of academia. I thought, okay, so I started college young because I was advanced, because I was homeschooled. I thought, all right, here we go. I want to be one of these intellectuals. Well, this is where they are. They're in academia. I had, and some of my, you know, my mom would tell me, you know, you got to do these things right because when you get to college, the standards are going to be so much higher. So you got to make sure you know what you're talking about. And in about, I don't know, a year, maybe, there was probably one semester where I started going full time in college took about one semester before that romantic idea of academia kind of evaporated. <laughs> I thought, okay, none of these intellectual conversations, I thought were going to happen in academia. They didn't materialize. Professors didn't really care. Students didn't really care. So I slugged my way through and I made it through. I got my undergrad degree and I thought, okay, look, I can't really do the academic thing right now. You know, Maybe I'll go to grad school, but realistically, the way that I learned about the world of ideas is online. So this was probably 2010 when I graduated. And I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into a nonprofit now that I've graduated and I'm going to actively create content in the world of ideas through the nonprofit world, because that's, I think that's the future. Well, worked in the nonprofit world for about a couple of years. And I found, you know, there's a whole lot of crap going on in the nonprofit world as well. So I don't know when I started going full time, but I eventually said, you know, I talked to my wife and she was, you know, very supportive. And she knew that I was going to be on the the, crap, the career path going down the world of ideas. It was just like, look, 
it's not happening in academia. It's not happening in the nonprofit world. I just got to do it myself. I'm going to go solo and see what happens. Um, and it took a little while. It took a couple of years before I got any momentum and any, you know, any kind of a following. But now I've had some, I've had some success. And ironically enough, with Patterson in Pursuit, I'm now going around to universities. I do a lot of interviews on universities, talking to the professors that some of them I don't actually deeply respect, but <laughs> I still get a lot of really good interviews from them. So I think, too, the last thing I'll say on that, being able to work outside of academia as an intellectual is it's pretty much a dream job. So I don't have any classes to teach. I don't have disinterested students that I have to, you know, read any, I don't have to grade anybody's terrible work. I can research whatever I want. I can write whatever I want, whenever I want, and communicate in whatever way that I want. So Square One, this book I just finished, I tried to make ruthlessly readable because modern philosophy is just terrible. It's terribly written. The ideas don't matter. And I don't read much uh, modern philosophy. And when I do, it's a nightmare because I think it's awful and irrelevant. So I try to make my work take advantage of being able to be outside of academia where I can write for the general public. So with Square One, even if you've been involved in philosophy for 20 years, you're going to get good, interesting, unique material out of that book. Even if you're totally unaware of philosophy and are just vaguely interested, you're going to be able to pick it up and read it and get something from the book. I think the next wave of future intellectuals, I think most of them are going to come outside of academia. Yeah. And, and what you said there about the book being, uh, I think you call it, said ruthlessly readable. Yeah. It's very true because as we talked before the show, I read most of this book uh, recovering from a chest cold and not feeling that great. And I was still able to read it without a problem. So it is definitely written. Uh, you know, it's not a 2000 page tome out there. It's a very, you know, very, I guess, concise work. And it really does drive home the point you're trying to make without having to go off in a thousand multi chapter tangents. You really do try mm -hmm. to focus on the point of your work. So why don't we talk about a little bit more about square one? And uh, sure. right in the beginning of the book, you state something. I, I want to read this right from the book. You say, Truth is discoverable. I'm certain of it. It's not popular to say. It's not popular to think. So why don't we just start right there? Before we go any further, what exactly is truth, first of all, and why do you believe it to be discoverable? Because that is, uh, to me, that sounds like a very logical statement, but it is, as you say there, it's not a popular one, especially in academia. Right. Yeah. And it's not just academia. It's uh, the general public, I think. Our general culture in the West thinks that the idea of objective truth is naive or that it's silly, that, oh, that was disproved, you know, a hundred years ago. There's no such thing as objective truth. The quote you just read, the entire part of the book, that's the beginning, that's the introduction. And that took me the longest to come up with. I worked <laughs> on trying to get that condensed down to three words. Truth is discoverable. If you can sum up the entire book, and really, I, the whole reason that I, you know, the foundation for my career, my passion, everything I'm doing, in three words, that's what it is. Truth is discoverable. So what I mean by truth, and I go into this a little bit in the book, it can be kind of an ambiguous word, but the truth is simply the way that things are. So there is a world, there is some, uh, the way I put it is there is existence, things are out there, and the way that they are, that is the truth. And it is possible for the mind to grasp, at least in some abstract respect and in some places, some concrete respect, it is possible to grasp the way that things actually are. It is possible to grasp the truth. Now, there are a million different attacks on this idea that a human mind can grasp objective truth. And so the first part is kind of an explanation for why there is truth. And in my worldview, ultimately, it comes down to logic. 
which I'd be happy to talk about. And then kind of at the last chapter of the book is responses to some of the most popular objections. So you get a lot of really popular objections. People bring up the liar's paradox. This sentence is false. It's supposed to be some kind of a logical contradiction that can't be resolved, therefore deflating the whole idea that there is objective truth. And there's many others. So the book kind of starts with an explanation. There has got to be truth. And then it's a it's my attempt at resolving some of the popular paradoxes that people throw to get around the idea that there is objective truth. Sure. I guess I think the main overall objection without honing on, on any one specific one is that basically the world is so vast. There is so much out there, even things that we think we see, we can't really necessarily say we know these things are true. They're right. just how we perceive them. So what a lot of people would say is, yeah, even the things that we think we know, we don't really know that we know them, which <laughs> sounds right. kind of crazy, but that is the kind of thing you hear out there. So yeah, all the time. What do you think are the biggest objections uh, kind of within that sort of overall idea that, you know, you might think you can discover truth, but you don't know that that truth is the truth. Yeah. So uh, there's a chapter in the book that I call there's implausible and impossible arguments. Implausible arguments are essentially say, look, maybe it's the case that there is some objective truth, but it's unrealistic to think we'll ever grasp it. So one example, kind of similar to what you're saying is, look, there's just so much information out there. The universe is so vast that we'll never be able to know enough to know whether or not we know something. <laughs> we always have to keep this. Uh, it seems also very scientific to say, look, we always have to keep an open mind and adjust to the data that maybe what we think is true today, we'll find out is not true tomorrow. And then there's impossibility arguments, which are a little bit more sophisticated, more philosophic, saying that it's not even possible in principle for there to be such a thing as objective truth. The very notion of objective truth itself, they say, doesn't correlate to anything in reality. So some of these people will say things like, we're stuck within our own subjective minds. They'll use terms like they say, in order to know objective truth, we would have to have access to the God's eye perspective, the kind of, you know, some universal consciousness idea, to see whether or not our ideas about the world are true. What I say in the book is, well, it is actually the case in some limited sense, we do have access to the God's eye perspective. I can say very basic truths like, you know, there are no square circles anywhere in the universe. I'm making a statement about existence. I'm saying there is no such thing as X anywhere in any possible universe, not just this universe. And it's something you can know, I would say, with certainty when you unpack the meaning of your terms. And therefore, you do have some kind of access to the God's eye perspective, even if it's very limited. So there are some basic logical truths which you can know with certainty. But there are even some what you could call empirical truths or metaphysical truths that you can know with certainty. So the existence of your own awareness is something you could say, you could come up with a sentence like, look, awareness is a real phenomenon in the universe. Awareness is going on. Now, this is also a statement about something that exists in the universe. And I could be certain that it's true, even if the physical world is an illusion, right? Even if we're all plugged in the matrix. And even if what we think we know about the physical world is completely wrong, we have no idea of what the external world is. At the very least, the phenomenon of awareness is happening. I know it. So that would be one example of people balk at this idea. But as I think I explained pretty well, you can know these type of things with certainty. And you mentioned the matrix here, and this is kind of a tangent, but it's kind of not because there are actual academics out there and many people that are seemingly intelligent that put forward this idea that we do live in a artificial reality of some kind that our minds are basically just hallucinating the rest of the world for us. And that, I think that does kind of play into some of their argument of, well, we can't really understand objective reality because reality is really just whatever our minds are sort of telling us is reality, but 
we don't know that that's even the real world we live in. We might all live in a a little tiny glass bubble with, uh, you know, <laughs> giant aliens are just watching over us and they're programming all our thoughts and everything that we see. Uh, and that sure. sounds like crazy sci-fi stuff, but I've, I've heard actual academics say this. So what's your response yeah. to this seemingly outlandish idea that we just live in and sort of maybe our minds are all plugged into a, a thing somewhere that just, you know, a little <laughs> socket that pumps all the all these ideas, all these things that we think are truth into our brains or whatever sure. they really are or what have you. So put it this way. I love the idea because I love the matrix. Let's I mean, it sounds cool. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it does. Let's grant that it's all the case. Let's say we are plugged into the matrix. It still does not follow that we cannot know objective truth. So I love that kind of radical skepticism. I think that's a very healthy way to discover truth is by saying, well, maybe this is possible. Maybe this is possible. Even in such a world, mathematical truths still apply. Two plus two still equals four, even if we're hallucinating everything. Even if everything is a hallucination and an illusion, the existence of your awareness happening is still a real phenomenon in the universe. It's still reality. Whatever is happening, the phenomena in your awareness are still taking place even if the underlying cause is illusory. So if I just had some magic mushrooms and now I'm hallucinating some pink elephant in front of me, well, <laughs> the pink elephant is some independent physical object might not exist, but just the actual awareness, the phenomena of perception, the my seeing something, is definitely something that is taking place. So even if we plug ourselves into the matrix, you can't get around logical truths that there are no married bachelors and all things are what they are is another logical truth. You can't get around that and you can't get around the existence of your own consciousness. So there is no, and I would say too, it's not even just uh, being plugged in the matrix. Whatever crazy scenario you come up with, if it's possible, you still will not be able to disprove that there is the real existence of awareness, and that you can't have any kind of logical contradictions. Those two things are absolutely certain. Steve, one thing I am absolutely certain of is the fact that health care prices have been skyrocketing in recent years. And I just need to take a minute out now to tell our listeners how our sponsors at Health Excellence Select can help. And guys, I have purchased my own health insurance for the last decade, and I saw firsthand how prices just skyrocketed after the implementation of Obamacare. Suddenly, I found myself with huge premiums, huge deductibles, and being told that I have to buy this specific insurance or I'm going to get fined. I realized right away that this was a scam and that I needed to seek an alternative. And I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing. This is an amazing legal alternative to Obamacare that allows people to share medical expenses with people of similar values. For most people, health sharing is a much more affordable option, and it's a lot less taxing on your soul than that corporatist Obamacare health insurance. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have put together the ultimate package to help you manage your health care. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health or giving my rep Jeff Cantor a call. He can be reached directly at 440-283-6849. Be sure to tell him Lions of Liberty sent you. Let's go back to something you mentioned a second ago, the, the squared circle example. And this is one that to me seems very obvious. A thing cannot be two things. So a square has one definition. It is a four-sided, equidistant, I guess you would say, not equidistant, but a four-sided thing with the same length. I'm not saying that in the most academic way, but <laughs> and then a circle is round. It does not have sides. So by that definition, you can't have a squared circle. And yet, 
I've heard you interview people who believe that you can have a squared circle. So what is yeah. what is that argument? Well, what is their argument that you can have something that actually does contradict its meanings, if that makes sense? Ah, uh, yes. Okay, so this is where we get. We have to dive into language because it would be very difficult for me to reproduce exactly what they mean because I think their meaning is shifty. So with it, there was an interview you bring up. I had an interview with a guy at Columbia who said – I was talking to him exactly about these things. Could you have some kind of real logical contradiction? Is it possible to have a square circle? And he said, well, I mean, maybe. And I said, okay, well, well, what we mean by square is mutually exclusive with what we mean by circle. So how could they be together? He said, okay, well, let's say that there are no square circles as you understand it, but maybe there are squircles. You know, <laughs> maybe there's this other thing that has these properties of squares and properties of circles and puts them in together in a way that we can't understand. So he said, for example, we can say something about square circles or squircles. He said, we can say that square circles are square. That's a true statement. I said, hang on a second. If you unpack what you mean by your terminology, you will discover a certain truth, unless you're using language in a very weird way, that what is square cannot be circular. For the same reason... So mathematics is an area that I've identified. There's a lot of irrationalism, a lot of ideas that there are logical contradictions. Shockingly enough, come from ideas in mathematics, which is a whole other topic. But an easier one to see, an easier, easier example, which actually came from that interview, is um, a married bachelor, right? Bachelor being understood as an unmarried man. Could you have a married bachelor? And the same answer, you cannot have a married bachelor. Well, what he said is, well, what about something like the Pope? True story. That was his example of who maybe is a married bachelor. The reason he said, what about something like the Pope is because in, I think in Christian theology, the Pope is something like being married to the church, something like that, but he's not married to somebody else. So he's a married bachelor. He's married, unmarried. And you get these kind of examples all the time. And all it is, is a confusion about language. It's appeals to ambiguous language and people try to say, because language is ambiguous, reality is ambiguous. Because language is fuzzy, reality is fuzzy. Because I can mean something over here, but I can kind of shift my meaning and then mean something else. When I say married, I'm kind of talking about being married to another person sometimes, but I could also be talking about being married to the church. Because people can play around with language, they try to say, oh, look, you can have true logical contradictions. This, I think, is, I'm certain, I would say, is absolutely Faults. And that's it's one of the motivations for this book is I've had so many conversations over the years with people that will argue, oh, you could have married bachelors or you could two plus two equals five sometimes that I decided, okay, I, I got to get down to the fundamentals. Why is it the case that there are no married bachelors and there are no square circles? Why is that the case? Well, it comes down to logic. When you unpack what logic is, you discover what I call the foundation of knowledge. Logic applies to everything in existence and that is necessarily true, which means that there are no contradictions in reality. There's no irresolvable paradoxes in reality. Everything is exactly how it is, and it must be that way. And it, it seems to me that a lot of these these examples, the squared circle example, the unmarried bachelor, they can only be justified if you begin to change the actual accepted meanings of those words. So you can say there's a squircle and that's a square as long as you change the definition of square. You know, as long as you right. don't say a square still has to be this four-sided thing. Well, if that's the case, exactly. then we've just thrown out the words entirely anyway. So what was the point? And same thing with a married bachelor. I mean, you can say there's a, a married man who acts like a bachelor. Maybe he lives in a exactly. separate room as his wife. Maybe he... Uh, 
lives the life of a bachelor. Maybe he sleeps with other women and and doesn't clean his dishes, <laughs> but but he's still married, so he's not a bachelor by those definitions. And exactly. I, I think no, it's you- a very dangerous when we allow the perversion of language like that. And that seems to be uh, your feeling as well, and why you've one of the major reasons that you pursued this work. Yes, that's precisely correct. So when you put your foot down and you say, okay, let's try to really unpack this whole married bachelor thing. You get down to really self-evident propositions that people will say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's a tautology. That's just self-evidently true. But you have to say them because people deny that they're true. So things like, okay, if it's the case that somebody is married, then it is the case that they are married. (laughs) So if it's the case that somebody is not married, then it's the case that somebody is not married. That's what we mean by the terms. So you can't put them together given what we mean by the terms. You're correct to say you could have a married person living as a bachelor, but if they're married, then they're married, right? right? As long as you're clear about what you mean and you're not shifting definitions, then you don't run into logical contradictions. And what's remarkable, Mark, really shocking, is that what people do is they discover these, what they think are contradictions, which are just confusions about language, and then they build a philosophy out of that. So instead of thinking, okay, well, look, I've discovered a contradiction, therefore I must have made some error in my use of language, because that wouldn't make any sense to say there's a married bachelor if we're consistent with our words. They say, oh, look, here's an example of a contradiction, therefore logic in general, as kind of a universal principle, can be violated. You have contradictions all over the place. So you have in the modern world this worldview that embraces the idea of logical contradiction. They think it sounds deep and profound to say logically contradictory things. An example I like to give is, you know, when somebody says, look, there is a cat sitting on the chair and there is not a cat sitting on the chair. (laughs) People go, ooh, wow, that's got to be really deep. I don't understand it. Yeah, exactly. That's so deep. It flew over my head. Totally. Yeah, exactly. However, that type of irrationalism is very popular. People love to hear things like that. Hey, well, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to sound like I don't understand it. So I'm just going to go along. It's like the emperor's new clothes, right? I'm just going to go along with it and say, oh yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, you can have married bachelors because it's fashionable to include logical contradictions in your worldview. So this project of mine of trying to explain why there are no logical contradictions, I really, I don't just see it as some esoteric philosophizing. I think it's got a direct impact on our culture because people, it like this seeps into political discussion. When people, if they can embrace logical contradictions, they don't have to have a consistent political theory. They don't have a consistent political theory. Well, that can be dangerous, right? If you say, look, everybody is fundamentally the same, but these group of people get special privileges, well, that's not consistent, right? You have to be consistent. And if you're not consistent, you get really bad philosophies, which directly impact the world. So like I do a lot of work in mathematics and the foundations of mathematics. It's not just some useless intellectual exercise that you might get in academia. I think it directly relates to our culture. So Steve, you call yourself a rationalist philosopher. Would you say that that basically just means what you say in square one, that there is truth and that rational philosophy is is the pursuit of that truth? Well, so it's actually an ambiguous word. So rationalist. <laughs> Uh-oh, now you're getting ambiguous on me. I'm getting worried. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the way that I mean it, is it's kind of a, a specific term in, in philosophy. There's this this long-standing debate between rationalists and empiricists. Where does knowledge come from? How can we know things about the world? Do we have to go out and experience things in the world to grasp how the world works, or can we just sit in an armchair and think? The empiricists are the ones who think we must go. We cannot know anything about the world without experiencing. The rationalists say, well, 
experiencing is fine, but we actually can have some knowledge that is prior to experience. So that's what I'm a rationalist. There is some knowledge, like I'm saying, you know, there is no married bachelor in any universe whatsoever. You know, I don't have to go to Pluto to see whether or not there's a married bachelor. I can know that sitting in an armchair here on planet Earth, that there aren't any married bachelors in Pluto. So in that respect, I'm a rationalist. And in the respect that, like I just said, the term that I use to describe this current state of the general public is irrationalism, right? This cultural phenomena of irrationalism, the idea that there is no truth, that there are contradictions. So if they're irrationalist, then I consider myself the counter to that. I'm a rationalist. All right. So one thing I want to touch on as well before we uh, wrap up here, I know you were raised uh, an evangelical Christian. Obviously, I'm assuming a lot of your beliefs have been challenged through your pursuit of philosophy. But do you believe that? I mean, you've interviewed people that do believe this, but do you believe that a sort of a irrational philosophy can can jive with a, a religious view? Oh, that's and an excellent that's question. A, probably more than a question <laughs> you can address in a couple <laughs> minutes. But <laughs> OK, so here's what I'd say. It is not the case that logical contradictions exist. So to the extent that any belief, whether religious or otherwise, includes a logical contradiction, it is necessarily false. There are some ideas in popular religion. So for example, in Christianity, the idea of a trinity, in some ways that people articulate what the trinity is, it, I think it includes logical contradiction and therefore is necessarily false. What I would also say is Religious beliefs as, as they're understood and as they're practiced in terms of like a sociological phenomenon are probably false. I don't think it's the case that I think the idea of like biblical literalism or any holy book literalism, I don't think that's a good method for reasoning. I don't think that's a flawed epistemology. However, what I would say is this, that there is a consistent part of the human experience that's been around since recorded history and before that that people report spiritual or religious experiences. There's some part of the human nature which experiences something that people say, okay, this is divine, this is supernatural, this is something more. And I've had one of those experiences. It was totally life-changing for me. And I think you can understand those experiences in a purely rationalist, logical framework. That's what I'm trying to do is piece together like a, I wouldn't call it a religion, but some rational spirituality. Try to actually, no mysticism, no magic, just trying to understand exactly what's going on. That may include the existence of a God. I don't think God properly understood needs to include any kind of logical contradictions if we're careful of what we mean. So I get criticized all the time by traditionally religious folks, like in the my evangelical community that I was raised in, was they am a complete heretic, like a complete, you know, they would say I'm a heretic. In the rational skeptics community, people, I get a ton of shit because I give a platform to people talking about religious experiences. I think that religions properly understood, again, in a broader context, point to some extremely deep truth that is there. It's just not articulated properly. And people take the truth and they bend it and twist it in all kinds of silly ways. So I think there is a middle ground. I'm not like a reductive materialist. I think there is some non-physical existence, some consciousness I don't think fits properly into the reductionist materialist worldview. And so, yeah, I think you can have religious ideas. I think you can have spiritual ideas that are perfectly consistent, perfectly rational, perfectly explanatory. In practice, that probably means that the popular mainstream religious conclusions are, uh, to put it nicely, probably a bunch of 
crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that's putting it nicely, I'd really love to hear you not put it nicely sometimes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll do that by continuing to listen to your show, Patterson in Pursuit. I definitely want to touch on that before I let you go. I really do enjoy you, what you've been doing, and uh, it pretty much speaks for itself. You're not out there doing this program to preach to people, to be dogmatic, to put your view of the world upon others. You're really trying to get the ideas from others and pursue this philosophy. So why don't you just quickly tell everybody out there what it is you're doing with Patterson in Pursuit. Sure. So right now I'm traveling the world with my wife. Right now we're in upstate Europe and in a week we'll be in New Zealand continuing the journey. And I'm interviewing people on all kinds of different topics from religious ideas to I do a lot on philosophy and I do stuff on politics and economics. And it's like you say, it's not me preaching to people. Honestly, it's my own pursuit of truth with microphone. <laughs> and if people don't like my analysis of things, they don't like my questioning, then I'm not trying to bring them into the show. It's just, I have developed over the past, I don't know, decade or so, a really powerful method for reasoning that I'm very proud of and I think is very accurate. And I think it results in discovering truth in lots of different areas because I'm not just focused on philosophy, I'm focused on a lot of different areas. That methodology I am applying to my interviews. So when I have, you know, I, right now I've spoken with professors from, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Columbia, Oxford, Cambridge, pretty much all the Ivy League schools I've spoken with them. And afterwards, I'll do a separate episode where I call my interview breakdowns, where I take my own approach, take my own philosophy and I say, look, here's what I like, here's what I don't like, here's why I like what I like, and here's why I don't like what I don't like. You know, make up your own minds. So, so far, people really like that. They like, and I, I try to make it, like in the book, I try to make it ruthlessly understandable. Like, I'm not trying to impress people. I'm not trying to bowl them over with jargon. I try to break things down in a very simple way that everybody can understand. So that's Patterson in Pursuit in a nutshell. And like I said, Patterson in Pursuit, it's on my playlist, guys. So maybe it should be on yours as well. And also, Steve, as we talked about uh, your book, Square One, uh, it is now out, I believe. So uh, if you just want to tell everybody where they can get that, of course, we'll also link to that in the show notes for today's program. Yep. So you can get it on Amazon. There's a Kindle version that's out now. And in the next couple of days, there's going to be a paperback version as well. In the next couple of months, there will be a voiceover because I, I like doing voiceover stuff. I also have a YouTube channel where I do a lot of voiceovers of the articles that I write. Are you doing your own voiceover for your own book? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like doing voiceover stuff. Yeah. All right. um, I also wrote a book on Bitcoin um, that I did a voiceover, and that's for free on uh, YouTube if you want to listen to that. That's actually really interesting that I, you get to hear the book in your voice because I just for one example, I recently uh, did an audio book, listened to an audio book of our recent guest, Jesse Ventura, and it was great, but it's weird hearing Jesse Ventura's <laughs> voice, but not in Jesse Ventura's voice. So I think right. it'll be interesting to actually hear your voice speaking your words. Yeah, and I really enjoy it too because text sometimes is ambiguous, not because reality is ambiguous, but because people read things in an ambiguous way, which that's just how text works. So it's really nice on my end because I get to say, look, this is what I meant. And you can understand it more with my own emphasis. So I really enjoy reading it. But also, if you don't want to do it through Amazon, I also have my all of my support comes through individual contributions on Patreon, which is a, a website where People say, hey, look, I'll pitch in a dollar or two whenever you release new content. So you can also contribute to the show that way, which when you contribute, you get a free copy of Square One and my book on Bitcoin. So those are two ways that people can pick them up. All right, Steve Patterson, guys, I do highly recommend checking out Steve's work, whether it's the book, whether it's the podcast, whether it's the many videos and articles you got out there. Pursuing truth is, I think, one of the most important things we can do. If we're going to have a rational political philosophy, we first have to have a rational method of thinking. So that's certainly something you're out there trying to do, Steve. So I do really appreciate your time and everything you're doing. And keep up the great work, Steve. Keep on roaring. 
Thanks, Mark. Great speaking with you. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Steve Patterson. And I got to say, as someone who believes that philosophy and the foundations of our beliefs are quite literally the most important things to advancing the cause to liberty, well, I really appreciate what Steve Patterson is doing, not just his overall work, but in particular, his podcast, which I really want to recommend you guys check out, Patterson in Pursuit. It really is a great program. He really is just, as the podcast title suggests, in pursuit of truth and knowledge. And I really do think his approach is a great one, and it's one that more people out there should and could take to things, you know, to listen to what other people have to say and try to use a rational thought process to sort out what they're saying, to re-examine your own beliefs, to be skeptical. These are all things Steve also talks about in his book, Square One. I really do think that the foundation of our knowledge is essential to being able to argue points, to being able to kind of spot the logical fallacies in the quote-unquote points that other people across the political spectrum often make. Those aren't always necessarily points per se as much as random statements that make no sense. But I really think that Steve does a, a really worthy task here of trying to sort things out and trying to really break things down to the base philosophical level. I think we need a lot more of that. I do hope to have Steve back. We talked a bit about after the show about how this philosophy, how using a rational philosophy in his view actually does lead one to the ideas of liberty. So we're going to try to do a follow-up with him sometime down the road, but today I just really wanted to introduce you to Steve's work and some of the base concepts of philosophy, of logic, and that sort of thing. So I really hope you guys enjoyed it, as I hope you guys enjoy everything we do here at Lions of Liberty. We've got some exciting things coming for you in 2017. Until then, there are some basic things that you guys can do to help this program out, starting with number one, share this show, baby. Share this with your friends. Share it with your family, especially a show like this where we really don't get too ideological, we really don't get into libertarian weeds at all. It's really just a show about the basics of philosophy and what Steve is doing here. So I really do think this is an episode in particular that you could easily share with some non-dogmatic family and friends or even friends and family that have another ideology but might really be open to, okay, well, maybe I do have to analyze the foundations of my beliefs, as Steve Patterson suggests. Another great way you can help us, of course, is to leave us a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio. These ratings and reviews that you guys leave are crucial, and I mean crucial, to those little algorithms that will show people certain shows, push you up in the iTunes ranking. iTunes in particular is still by far the largest podcasting platform, so any help you guys can give us in this area, huge, huge, huge help to this program. Till next time, guys, this coming Wednesday... We've got something really interesting for you. It's a little experiment that we're doing, and I'm not going to reveal too much about what that is because I will explain it all in two days, so you don't have to wait too long, but it's going to be something called the Liberty Draft. That's right. The first ever, as far as I know, draft of libertarian personalities, uh, libertarian politicians. We're going to draft our own little fantasy teams here with our eye on 2020 and creating a great propaganda team for liberty in 2020. And to find out more about just what that entails, well, I guess I'll see you in two days. Until then, folks, live long and live free.